Amen. Well, how many of you are ready to get into Galatians tonight? Thank you, praise team. That was a good job. Enjoy the worship. Let's stand together, can we? And um, let me remind you that uh, bring somebody who needs to be saved this weekend. We're going to be in four services. Um, Saturday night, 6. Sunday morning, 9 and 11. Sunday evening, 6. That's what I thought. I want to be sure. And uh, I talked to John. Well, I actually Skyped with John. How many of y'all have ever Skyped the video thing? And he said, I'm ready to go. He said, I'm the Energizer Bunny that just keeps on going. And I'm not going to be tired. I've I'm, I'm really got a word for the church. And he's just a good young man. But uh, God's on him, I believe, as a, as a revivalist. Um, and I think it's good to hear what God is saying to other people. Amen? It really is. So I'm looking forward to this weekend. If, and if you're not here for one of those services, may God... I'm kidding. Be here, all right? Now, uh, we're going to look at Galatians 5 tonight and the fruit of the Spirit. And it's good stuff. So let's do that. Uh, Galatians series, part 12, through the Spirit. Now, last time, well, let's pray first, can we? Of course. Father, thank you for your word tonight. Lord, we desperately need the direction of the Lord. We need the life that comes from your word. And we pray in Jesus' name that you will answer and feed our souls tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. And by the way, um, we're praying over these services as well. If you ever want to join the intercessors, they're back there. Sherry, Paula, they're back there. And how many others are meeting back there with you guys now? Five to ten people back there grabbing hold of heaven. You might want to do it. We're believing God to bless. And then Easter, we're going to be in four services again. But it'll just be us. We're going to have a lot of folks on Easter. Two Saturday nights and two Sunday mornings. It's going to be good. A lot of resurrection. Now, you're wondering, five o'clock Saturday night and seven o'clock Saturday night. But I don't want to go into that too much. It'll mess up this weekend. Some of you will be here at five. And we won't. All right, last time, Paul discussed the works of the flesh by providing a somber, distasteful list of fleshly manifestations. You remember that list? Turn to your neighbor and say it was bad, and you can be seated. The works of the flesh. I'm echoing just a little bit, Terry or Sean. He finished his list by saying, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who do such things, read it with me, everybody, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I'm going to really deal with that as we go through this message tonight, so we understand what that means. Now, notice, he says, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So he's talking about an action. Now, the word for do here. Can you believe that we could actually go into the word do? But let me show it to you. I'm, I'm a word guy. You know that. I love parsing verbs and all that stuff that a lot of people don't. But the word for do here is proso, and it means to practice. It means you practice something. Now hold that thought, and let's go back to verse 17. That was verse 21. Now let's go back to verse 17 and look at do again. He says, for the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. How many of you can testify that's true? Every single day that's true. Amen. All right. Now, and these are contrary or they're, they're going at one another all the time so that you do not do the things that you wish. Now what that, that doesn't mean you're out of control. What it means is you shouldn't do everything your flesh wants you to do. That's what it's saying. It doesn't mean you, you can't help yourself and devil made you do it or the flesh made you do it and you're not responsible. It could easily read, so you do not decide to submit to or yield to everything your flesh wants. Now, the word for do here is poieo and it signifies 
a completed action. Now, what is the difference between the two do's? Poeo, the first do in verse 17, refers to a completed action. You did something. Like, you know, I can throw this on the floor. I did it. It's completed action. That's the word poeo. Now, prasso in verse 21 refers to a habit that is the result of continually repeating an action. It's how addictions are formed. Remember that first hit you took off a cigarette? Some of you? You remember how your body rebelled? Do you remember how it felt like you put a brick down in your lungs, but you persevered until your flesh decided that it liked it? Amen? And so it became what we call an acquired taste. There's almost no habit that we get into that at first our flesh doesn't give us a strong signal, hey, I don't care for that. But you persevere, I persevere, and we create habits. So both words occur in Paul's final indictment of heathen behavior. And a great example of both words being used is in Romans 1, verse 32. Let me show this to you. In Romans 1, verse 32, this is the last verse in the dark and gloomy chapter of Romans 1. Now, he says, Who, knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit, now, that's the word do, same word, prasso, those who practice, who keep on doing the things that he listed in Romans 1, he, he that keeps doing those things is worthy of death. And they not only do, there's poeo, the same, but they have pleasure in them that keep on doing them. Now, in other words, you got people who are saying, amen, you go for it. You, you go ahead and walk in the lusts of those, fle- uh, those lusts of the flesh. And the ones who are cheering them on also have it in their heart to do the very same thing. It, got, it, it makes you wonder, why our government is so behind pushing the homosexual agenda. Because verse 32 really is all about that kind of thing. Now my clicker is out again, and this thing frustrates me every week. There we go. Amen. I am in the spirit. All right, in the very next verse, Paul's indictment is carried over to the hypocrite. And here's what he says in Romans 2 verse 1. He says, therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For wherein you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, what does it say? Do, and it's the word prasso, means keep on doing the same things. So here you got the people who are judging others, but while they judge others, they're practicing the very same thing. That's what we call a hypocrite. If you're going to If you're going to judge somebody with righteous judgment, be sure your own heart is clean. Amen? So those who are judging others, and I found this to be a a fact of life, that the people who are hardest on you, who have no mercy on you, who judge you harshly, unlike God, there's no mercy, no compassion, no desire to restore. They just judge. You can mark it down. There are skeletons lurking in their own closet. You can mark it down. It's a fact of life. And the reason they're attacking you is because they see themselves in you. That's free. I'm not even going to charge you for that little bit of counsel. Now, here's the point to all this. The people who Paul excludes from the kingdom of God are those who are making a habitual practice of some or all of these terrible sins. He says the very same things. Now hold that thought. Let me be sure you got that. What is Paul telling us when he says, those who do those things will not inherit the kingdom of God? Who's he talking about? He's talking about those who practice those sins habitually as a way of life without conviction. In other words, they haven't been saved. Now, Paul talks about the very same thing in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 11, where he gives a similar list of sins. Paul liked lists, and he was always listing things. 
1 Corinthians 13, he lists all the attributes of love. You can go through all his lists. Anyway, here's another one. Just to refresh our memory, let's look at his list of sins that he wrote to the Corinthian church. Do you not know? Here's the same statement, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, then who's the unrighteous? He's going to list them for us. Do not be what, everybody? I'm preaching on this one this week, this weekend. Don't miss it. I'm not. Oh, I'm not. Kathy just told me I'm not. Oh, I'm talking about John. Well, I met next weekend. John Collier is here this weekend. See, I've got Kathy there, and then I have my secretary there, and they're both yelling at me from the sideline. Oh, I need them, but I've got to have them. Anyway, read it with me. Do not be deceived. About what? Here's what. Fornicators. What is fornication? It comes from porneo, from which we get pornography, and it's talking about any of the sexual sins possible to mankind. Uh, sex before marriage, bestiality, incest, you name it, it all falls under the category of porneo, fornication. Nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor who? Nor who? Sodomites. Nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Now look what he then says to the Corinthian church. And I want you to read this with me. And such were some of you. What's the prettiest word in that verse? Were. Such were some of you. What were you? Well, it's not pretty. You were fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, drunkards, and revilers, and extortioners. But that's what you were. That's the way we were. It's not the way we is. That's bad English, but it's good preaching. We are not that way anymore. Why? Because we've been born twice. Look what he says. Such were some of you, but what happened? Read it with me. This is so good. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Give the Lord a hand of praise for that. Isn't that good? In both of these passages, Galatians and 1 Corinthians 6, he is differentiating between the genuine believer and the unregenerate person. Catch that. The unregenerate person who makes a practice of these sins. Notice that Paul says, such were some of you. You're washed, sanctified, justified. You were. Something happened when you got saved that was absolutely revolutionary. It's very important that we as believers understand the intent of Scripture's teaching on this matter because a lot of people get condemned about this. They read verses like this, and a couple I'm going to show you in a moment, and they get very condemned. Here's what Paul is saying, that the genuine child of God can no longer practice these sins conscience-free, unencumbered by conviction, and untethered by divine restraint. You can't do it. If you've really been saved and you go off practicing any of those sins, there is no way, my friend, you will have peace. There is no way you can easily live with it. You with me? The Christian does sin. Anybody sin since you got saved? I just want to know. I want to make sure. Okay. A few of you haven't sinned since you got saved. God bless you. I want to meet you afterwards. Now, the Christian sins. But what happens to the Christian when he sins? He experiences, say it, conviction for those sins. And he is miserable when he's living in a backslidden state. There is no true born-again Christian that can live happy in a backslidden state. That's why so many backslidden people smoke something, drink something, shoot something, do something to numb their mind, to numb the voice of guilt. Because we've been born again. Now the Holy Ghost is living inside of us. Now something is there that wasn't there when we were lost. And we have a brand new nature that loves righteousness. 
One of the most misunderstood passages in the New Testament along these same lines is found in 1 John 3, 6. Listen to what it says. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Uh Uh-oh. I used to read that and say, oh my gosh, I'm lost. (laughs) Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Let me tell you something about that verse. Satan uses that passage to beat Christians over the head all the time, especially new Christians who are struggling with doubt about their salvation. Are they really born again? Are they really a child of God? We say, we say when we read that verse, well, I, I sin sometimes. Does that mean that I've never known the Lord, that I'm still lost? What does that mean? Look at it again. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has never seen him nor known him. When John says, here's very important. When John says, whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him, the word sins is in a verb tense that means this, to ongoingly live a life of practicing sin. Just like somebody lost. He's not saying the Christian never sins, because we're told in the Bible, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So he's not saying that the Christian never sins. Again, he's talking about what Paul was talking about. The individual who is living a sinful lifestyle, free of conscience, free of conviction, free of remorse, just like a lost person. This person's life has not changed. There's no repentance. There's no conviction. There's no fruit indicating a true conversion. I'm going to tell you something tonight, church. Here's the truth. If you really get saved, it's going to show. We're not talking about grabbing a book of rules and regulations and getting religion. We're talking about a radical transformation in the soul of a person where your nature is changed. The things you used to love, you hate. And the things you used to hate, you love. Where you get a whole new desire for righteousness and to please God and to walk in his will and to do what is right. You cannot meet Jesus and not be radically saved. Now, I'm not saying you're you're 180 degrees different in one night, but immediately we begin to see a difference. If you're saved, it'll show. We used to sing, if you're saved and you know it, say amen. And everybody would say, amen. How many of you ever sang that? Wow. Makes me want to stand up and do it right now. (laughs) This is is what Paul's talking about and and what John was talking about. Remember, every blood-bought believer has two natures. One of them is the flesh, and it is incorrigibly bad, and there is nothing good in it. And the other is the new man, and it is incorruptibly good. The indwelling Holy Spirit in the believer never ceases to war against both the believer's old Adamic nature and against its works. No genuine believer, church, can reconcile himself to the habitual practice of the works of the flesh without being deeply, profoundly convicted and troubled and sleepless and bugged and ill at ease, you lose your peace. If all evidence of the new birth is absent from the life of of a person who professes to be saved, he's not saved. Oh, it's quiet in here. Well, that's just so black and white, Pastor Jeff. Yes, it is, because it is black and white. Again, you know, sure, you've still got hang-ups and, and some habits and different things that you're needing to overcome, and, and growing spiritually is a lifelong thing. But from the moment you're saved onward, if you have a new nature, it's going to show. It's going to show. 
I don't care where you were, what you did. If you're saved and you know it, say amen. amen. You ought to know it. The Bible says that you may know that you have eternal life. Eternal life is not a hope so, maybe so, perhaps so. It's a no-so faith. Now, the person who's really not saved, his habitual practice of sin proves it. The New Testament continually warns us not to be deceived along these lines. All John is saying is what Paul also said. The person who lives in sin, who practices the kinds of things Paul listed as a way of life without conviction, is a person that has never been born again. Everybody say amen. amen. Now look what Jesus said. If you want more proof, Jesus said, you'll know them by their fruits. Do you know what that requires? Judging. But we're not supposed to judge, Pastor Jeff. That's not loving. You better judge or you're going to get the stuff knocked out of you. How are you going to know by somebody's fruit if you don't judge the fruit? We're all called to be fruit pickers. That's right. Look what Jesus said. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from a thorn tree? No. Or figs from thistles? No. Even so, said Jesus, every good tree brings forth what kind? The good tree being, if you have been born again, if Jesus is living inside of you, if he's in your heart, then the good tree is in you. And the good tree will bring forth good fruit because you're attached to the tree. And the life of that tree is flowing into you the branch. And so whatever the tree is producing, the branches produce. And Jesus is just giving us a simple agrarian fact that you can't have a thorn tree and get grapes off of it because there's no grapes in the thorn tree. It's not there. How are you going to get grapes being, being attached to a grape vine? So whatever you're attached to, and it's going to be one of two things, Jesus Christ, or I'm going to say it, the devil. Because the Bible says if you're not a child of God, you are a child of the devil. That's exactly what God says. What that, it doesn't say, that's not the Bible saying that you're a demonic person. It's saying that you've only been born once, and so the nature you have is from Adam and Adam's fall that the devil was totally behind. So you haven't been born twice, but if you've been born twice, then you have the good tree living in you. And so all you got to do is abide in the vine. That means get with God every day. Meditate in the word of God. Obey him. Do what he shows you to do. And naturally, you're going to start bearing fruit that we're going to look at in just a moment. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit. It can't happen. Nor can a corrupt tree bring forth fruit that is good. Every tree that does not bring forth good fruit What's going to happen to it? It's going to be cut down and cast into the fire. That's talking about hell. Wherefore, read it with me, everybody, by their fruits you shall know them. So he's talking here about false teachers and false prophets. So what do you do when you hear a false teacher or a false prophet and you're wondering about their message? You don't let their charisma take you or their persuasive powers take you. You look at the fruit of their life. And if they're not living according to the word of God, that is corrupt fruit coming out of a corrupt tree. This is why after listing the works of the flesh, Paul goes on to list the evidence of a person's true conversion. The fruits of the Spirit. Now notice, we are not to judge someone's, the authenticity of somebody's spiritual life by the gifts of the Spirit. We are to judge the authenticity of somebody's life by the fruits of the Spirit. He said, well, Pastor Jeff, what would be the difference? Because remember when Jesus said, many are going to say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did not we cast out devils in your name and heal sick people in your name and do many wonderful works in your name? In other words, they had gifts 
They did supernatural things. But Jesus said, depart from me. I never knew you. They were never born twice. He never knew them. So how do you know, how do you judge the authenticity of somebody's spiritual life? By the fruits that they bear. Now let's read the fruits of the Spirit together, can we? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Look at your neighbor and say, that sounds just like you. Now, the word for fruit is the Greek word karpos. And karpos is used often in the New Testament in its natural sense, referring to real edible fruit. But here in Galatians 5, it's used to describe that which is produced in the life of the believer by the energy of the indwelling Holy Spirit. So, as lust works secretly and displays itself in the works of the flesh, so the Holy Spirit works secretly and reveals his presence by the character traits that Paul just listed. You will know them by their fruits. Now, do you know that the first three, love, joy, and peace, uh, are emotional? The first three fruits of the Spirit are emotional. We experience emotions involving them. Love, oh, I love them. Joy, ooh, I'm happy. Peace, uh, right? I don't know what happens up here sometimes. I just want to be sure I'm keeping you. <clears throat> I was telling somebody the other day, when I got saved in juvenile home, nobody followed up on me. Uh, the guy that came was a Baptist preacher. He preached the gospel to us in juvenile home, and then he left. He didn't know when we were getting out or how to follow up on it, so nobody followed up on me. All I knew was that in juvenile home, um, something incredible had happened to me, and I felt such peace. I was 16 years old. So I started looking for it in, in all the wrong places when I got out. One of the places I looked, I got, I got into transcendental meditation. Really did. Started reading these mystics, and of course the Beatles helped me along, and <laughs> others. All you need is love. And it sounded so good. But they didn't know what they were talking about. But anyway, so I, I, was, I read that you need to go out in nature and sit down and get in the lotus position and start doing this chant. I'm not going to tell you the chant because I don't want to give demonic information. But it was a chant. And you were supposed to eventually be caught up and become one with the universal rhythm of nature. So I went out there, sat on the ground, got in a lotus position, started doing the chant. All of a sudden, I'm aware of something. And I look down, and ants are all over me, in my pants. And I jumped up, started screaming, tried to get them all off of me, went home with a bunch of ant bites on me and a splitting headache. And that was my experience with transcendental meditation. Like God was saying, hey, dude, you got saved. Get out of there. <laughs> oh, my. The Lord has a sense of humor. I'm, I'm convinced because I've met Jesus. What am I doing with that stuff? All right. So he, he gave me a real clear signal. I was going down the wrong road. Now, notice the first three, love, joy, and peace, they're emotional. They're emotional in nature. Now, the first fruit of the Spirit is love, agape, agape, and it won't change again. Somebody please help me. Terry, Sean, it won't change. It won't change. There I went, but he changed it for me. I need my clicker. No, it's not working. I'm hitting every button on it. I'm sorry, y'all. Forgive me. That's not what's doing it. There it went. All right. In Jesus' name, up from the dead. All right. 
Now, the typical, you have a battery? No, no, I'm good. Let me, let me see if I can get through it. Okay, thank you. The typical word for love among the Greeks was philanthropia, from which we get our word philanthropy. You have philanthropists. And this is what the common Greeks used, philanthropia. It was a word that meant to give a man what was due him. Its original meaning with the Greeks was far lower than the New Testament word Philadelphia or phileo. Now, you recognize Philadelphia as Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Well, see, that was named after a Christian word, as many of our cities were. Since we've all forgotten God in America, it's hard to forget a God who's everywhere in the character of your nation. So Philadelphia is from a Greek word. It was Philadelphia. And it means the love of one believer for another. Genuine brotherly love. Phileo. Okay? Phileo is used to represent tender affection as between friends. But even higher than phileo is agape. And we all know the word agape. It's not present due to any excellency in its objects. In other words, agape loves whether you are attractive to it or appealing to it or not. Agape is a choice. I have decided to love you. It's the God kind of love. It is supreme love. Way higher than phileo, which was friendship love. Now, Christian love whether exercised towards the brethren or towards men generally, is not supposed to be an impulse from the feelings. It doesn't always operate through natural inclinations. Nor does it appear only with those with whom we have a natural affinity. Hey, I like you. We've got chemistry. we got things in common, so I, I love you. Agape says, we may have nothing in common. You may look freaky to me. I may not know what to say to you, but I choose to love you when you walk in the door with the love of God. Which love do you think God loved us with? Which love do you think it is? And for God so loved the world. What was it? It was agapao or agape. God so loved the world. He chose to love us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were spitting in his face, he loved us anyway. And even now, when you and I sin, mess up, disappoint the Lord, he still says, I've chosen to love you. Aren't you glad for that? That's unconditional love. Now, do you know that phileo is never used in Scripture when it comes to a command to us to love God? It never tells us to phileo God. It says for us to agape God. We are to love God. For instance, Peter writes, and I think this is a cool verse, whom having not seen, you love agape. Isn't it amazing? Here we are on a Wednesday night. We all have lives. We do things. We pay bills. We make money. We raise kids. We're all involved in life, and we are in love with someone we've never seen. That's amazing. Having not seen him, yet you love him. If I were to ask any of you, do you love the Lord? Oh, yeah. Well, how do you know that? You've never seen him. And you would get, be nonplussed. I don't know how it's happened. I came to him. I repented. Next thing I knew, I loved him. I love Jesus. It takes a lot of love for God to give up your life. But people have done it through the centuries. Having never seen him, touched him, personally conversed with him like this, yet we are slap happy in love with him. That's amazing. Isn't that a miracle? He says, though now you do not see him, yet believing you are rejoicing with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Even though you don't see him, you're rejoicing because you know you're going to see him. One of the greatest examples of the two words at play, phileo, and agape is in the exchange between Peter and Jesus at the seashore. 
following Peter's denial of Christ. Remember that? I don't know him, don't know him. And then blankety, 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 I don't know him. He denied the third time with cursing. John 21, verses 15 and 17. Let me just show you the way it breaks down. Remember, Jesus is now resurrected. He's called the disciples out of their boat to the shore. He's got a fish fry going on. So Jesus was not a vegan. Just thought I'd let you know that. Jesus ate meat. He ate fish. Now watch this. He calls Simon Peter, who denied him three times. He says, Simon, I got a question for you. And you know Simon was, oh, here it comes. Because on the third denial, remember Jesus walked by and looked at him. And, Jesus, and Peter went out and wept bitterly. Well, now Jesus is confronting him. He says, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me, agapao, agape? Do you love me more than these? And he points to the disciples. Because remember, he had bragged, though they all deny you, I won't. So he, he points to the other 11, and he says, Simon, you want to tell me again that you love me more than they do? Now look what Simon said. He said, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. He didn't say agape, supreme love. He said phileo, friendship love. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs, but he didn't stop there. He said to him a second time, Simon, Son of Jonah, do you love me? Used agape again. And Peter said to him the same thing. Yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. He said, tend my sheep. Now Jesus is going to turn the screw and take it home and hit him a third time because he denied him three times. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you even phileo me? Do you see it? Peter, you've told me twice now, you don't love me supremely. You're not going to brag that way as you did before. But, but how about phileo? Is that real? I'm sure he was squirming in his sandals. Peter was grieved. Why do you think he was grieved? Because he said to him three times, do you phileo me? It's like if you had a good friend, Jesse, I've known a long time. Jesse, do you love me supremely? Well, pastor, you know, I like you as a friend. Jesse, do you love me supremely? You know, truthfully, I like you as a friend. And then I said, you sure you even like me as a friend? Hmm. He said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I at least phileo you. Love you as a friend. Love you dearly. I cherish you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now remember, Peter had boasted, though all men be offended because of you, I will never be offended. So Jesus let him know, you're not what you thought you were. And folks, let me tell you something about the Lord. And this is one of the tough things about maturing. When you're young in the Lord, you think you'll do anything for him. You think that you'll be true to the end. You think that you will not falter or fail. And then you find out you still have weaknesses. You still stumble. You still fall sometimes. And you have to admit, you know what? I'm not everything I thought that I was. I'm going to be honest about where I am. God loves honesty. Now, all Peter is saying is, I am not going to strut and tell you something that's not true. When Peter responds by using phileo, it is the expression of a humbled soul that has seen its weakness and need of strength yet still with evidence of true attachment. He did love Jesus. He just didn't love him supremely, perfectly. He wasn't flawless like he thought he was. And you know what? Neither are we. We are not flawless like we might like to think. Take heed that any man thinks he stands because he could the next day fall. 
Clark's commentary puts it this way, quote, It's remarkable that in these three questions, our Lord uses the word agapao, which signifies to love affectionately, ardently, supremely, and perfectly. And Peter always replies using the word phileo, which signifies to love, to like, to regard, to feel friendship for another. It was as if our Lord said, Peter, do you love me ardently and supremely? To which Peter answers, Lord, I feel an affection for you. I do esteem you, but I dare not say any more. That's good. That's wise. Amen? Now back to Galatians. The word used for love is agape, which is supreme love. Through the Spirit is agape, the kind of love that chooses to love in spite of the merit or attractiveness of the thing that is loved. This is the love that grows in the heart of the child of God as spiritual fruit. So that, you know what? You don't have to like everybody, but you do need to love everybody. Can I give you another revelation? You don't have to like them to love them. Amen, Pastor Jeff, that's profound. I'm going to think about that all the Now, joy. Everybody say joy. Joy Joy is not just another word for happiness. Human happiness depends on what happens. Happiness depends on a happening. You get a raise, you get happy. You get a new car, you're happy for a while until somebody dings it. Um, Different things on earth make us happy, but have you ever noticed that happiness doesn't last? Because everything in this earth is perishing. But joy is different. Joy smiles in the face of even the most adverse circumstances. Jesus perfectly reflected the power of joy. Over and over in his last talk with his disciples, with the shadow of the cross, black and heavy on his heart, Jesus still spoke of joy. He said, these things I've spoken to you. Why did he speak them? Read it with me. That my joy might remain in you and your joy might be full. I think my favorite poster of Jesus that I've ever seen was not this hippie-looking guy with a halo around his head, but it was Jesus in the middle, John on one arm, and Peter on the other arm, and Jesus' head was thrown back, and he was laughing as hard as he could laugh. And it looked like they were having a great time. And I said, believe it or not, folks, that was Jesus. His joy was so infectious so contagious, so obvious that he said, Lord, I am, I am, and and disciples, I have spoken to you that the joy you've seen on me is on you. And again, he said, look at this, I will see you again and your heart shall rejoice. And now read the last part with me. Your joy, no man takes from you. Say no man. He said, the joy that I'm giving you Don't you let any man, any devil, any circumstance take it from you. Not only that, but Jesus specifically prayed to the Father that his followers would experience joy. Look what he said. Now I come to you, Father, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Let me ask you a question. We read these things about joy, these promises about joy. Do you see this on a lot of churches? How many Christians do you know that are always full of joy? How many joyful people do you know? Hold on, there's too many responses. Over here. I'm just saying, I want you to think about this. Because guess what? Joy is the defining mark of heaven. Joy has its source in God, not an earthly happening. The psalmist sang, You will show me the path of life, and in your presence is what, everyone? Fullness of joy. Where do we get joy? In his presence presence. How do we get the presence of God around us? Well, he inhabits the work, the praise of his people. I believe he's there when you pray. He's there when you praise him. He's there when you're in the word. The key to having joy is getting into his presence because in his presence is fullness of joy. 
Statements like these contradict the gloomy view the unsaved world often has of heaven as some dull place where people hold endless, boring prayer meetings. Thank you, I'd rather go to hell. Because all my buddies are going to be down there with me, and we'll sit around the hell bar and talk about old times. Where did you get that? That is so profoundly stupid. You know nobody in hell. You see nobody in hell. You recognize it's dark, tormenting, and forever. Where is there going to be real joy? It's going to be in heaven. Joy is the mark of heaven. Heaven is going to be a place of endless, spontaneous, combustible joy in the presence of God and His Son, Jesus Christ. Peter said, joy unspeakable and full of glory. I like what John Phillips wrote. He said, joy is the rainbow, smiling, undaunted, and triumphant in the storm. Joy is the happiness of heaven. I love this statement. Joy is the happiness of heaven imported by the Spirit of God into a receptive human heart. We've got imported joy. Joy is the sunbeam lighting the prisoner's cell. Joy is knowing Jesus. If you want it in a nutshell, there it is. If we say that together, joy is knowing Jesus. Now let's get to the third one, and we're going to close with this. The third emotional type, fruit of the Spirit, is peace. There is peace for the Christian in the storm. God's peace in us produces a calm, untroubled spirit, come what may. I am so thankful for peace. I am so thankful for God's peace. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. Thank God for peace. As with all the fruit of the Spirit, amen. As with all the fruit of the Spirit, Jesus modeled God's peace perfectly. Have you ever noticed in the Bible... He was never in a hurry, never upset, never disturbed. Get this, from the age of 12, Jesus knew that he was to die on a cross for the sins of the world. Because when his parents found him talking to the doctors, they said, what are you doing? He said, don't you know I should be about my father's business? He already knew what the father's business was. He knew at 12 he would die on a cross for our sins. I don't know about you, but if I know that at 12 years old, I'm not having a happy teen life. I'm going to have some teen angst. <clears throat> not Jesus. Although the shadow of the cross drew nearer every day, he never showed the slightest fear. It never upset his peace and it never disturbed his poise. Jesus lived above the storm. God's peace is part of our inheritance as a child of God. Do you believe that? Look what Jesus said. Read this with me. Peace I leave with you. How many of you have peace tonight? All right? Even in the midst of trouble, he said, peace I'm leaving with you, and my peace I give to you. So what did we get from him? We got his joy, and we got his peace. Not as the world gives do I give to you. What do you mean by that? I'm not going to give it to you and take it back. If I give it to you, I'm going to let you keep it. I give it to you for good. Peace is the legacy of he who is called the Prince of Peace. His is the peace that passes all understanding. Now, I'm going to look at Peter and we're going to close. Before the day of Pentecost, Peter fell apart at even the slightest suggestion from a young girl that he had been a disciple of Jesus. I don't know him, don't know him, don't know him. No, 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 no. But after Pentecost, after the Holy Spirit fell on him, we see a different Simon Peter. He's arrested by Herod and sentenced to death. His dear friend James has already been beheaded. James went before him. The date has been set for his execution. Tomorrow he's going to die. 
16 soldiers took turns ensuring he would not escape. What is Peter doing? Is he biting his fingernails, calling for a lawyer, breaking out in a cold sweat of fear? Is he renouncing Christ again to try to get out of it? Nope. He is asleep. Without extra strength, excedrin PM. He's asleep. Sound asleep. So asleep that an angel that's sent into the cell has to hit him with his sword. Get up! Peter thinks he's having a vision. He led him through the gates, led him out into the city, and he got set free. But I want you to notice, Peter went from panicking by just being recognized as a disciple to sleeping like a baby the night before his execution. What is that? That's God's peace that passes understanding. He hadn't called us to panic. He's called us to have peace. So there are the first, these are the first three fruits of the Spirit, love and joy and peace. And they are the glorious result of abiding in the vine, Jesus Christ. And they are the side benefit, the great reward of walking with him. Just stay plugged in and abide in him daily. And these fruits will be produced in you. Can we stand together? Next time, we're going to talk about the great evidential fruits of the Spirit. How many of you are thankful for the fruit of the Spirit? Amen. I'm so glad that the Holy Spirit is here and lives within us. And wow, what he produces in us is a miracle. Lord, we praise you tonight. In a dark and hate-filled world, you have given every true child of God the peace that passes understanding, the joy unspeakable, and the love of very God grown in us. And Lord, I thank you for it tonight. Can we just lift our hands to him? And let's go ahead and just worship.